My guest today is Tyler Cohen, who I'm pleased to have on the show for a second time. Tyler is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He blogs at Marginal Revolution, hosts the Conversations with Tyler podcast, is a regular contributor at Bloomberg View, and is the author of a number of books, including The Great Stagnation, Averages Over, The Complacent Class, and most recently, Stubborn Attachments, a vision for a society of free, prosperous, and responsible individuals. No, I've never been disappointed by any of Tyler's books, and I recommend them without reservation. But to me, Stubborn Attachments is his best one yet. And so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with him about it today. Thank you. Tyler Kong, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Happy to be here. So, you know, uh, in a post earlier this year that you wrote on Marginal Revolution, you said, one good reason to write a book is when you have the feeling you cannot do anything else without getting the book out of your system. In that sense, you can think of the lust to write books as a kind of disability. And so I had to ask you to open, uh, is that the sort of disability that led you to write Stubborn Attachments? Well, I've had this disability my whole life, but this is the book I've worked on for the longest, uh, for about 20 years. I don't mean that I worked on it full steam, but every year I would put a month or so in and this is my most philosophical book, and I thought it was one where the ideas needed to germinate for many years. It's basically my defense of a free society and how an economist thinks about the questions of what kind of world is actually justifiable is better than some other kind of world. Yeah, you know, that was my sense as well. It seemed much more philosophical, and as such, I was wondering if writing it was different, more, maybe more challenging than many of your other books? Well, most of my other recent books have been what you might call more popular. This book is more in the style of actually my earlier articles. So I would say the other books were more challenging. Uh, this was more natural to me. And I've actually published a fair amount in philosophy journals, even top philosophy journals, uh, typically in the 90s, not recently. Uh, but this to me was, in a sense, easier in terms of style and trying to be chatty and leaving every chapter with an anecdote and everything being narrative. This to me is just the argument. Here they are. Here's what I want to say. Boom. Well, you know, one of the things I liked about it, though, is that while it is, it doesn't have quite that conversational style, it's not like you have to delve deeply into the math. I mean, you can, you provide appendices and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, so I guess there was a tension between making it understandable to the more casual reader, but allowing someone who wants to get into more depth to be able to delve into those details. Yes, it's also short. There's a minimum of terminology. Uh, I feel it's a book any educated reader could get through you know, pretty easily. Yeah. I, you know what? Like to start on the book itself, uh, right in the introduction, uh, there was something that, well, I don't know, maybe I take issue with it a little bit. Uh, you say we need to develop a tougher, more dedicated, and indeed a more stubborn attachment to prosperity and freedom. And I read that and I thought, it, gosh, it, it seems to me in 21st century America, we're you know, almost obsessively attached to prosperity and to freedom. And, and I was wondering you know, if, you, if you disagree with me on that. Well, when I observe the policy dialogue in Washington, D.C., so much of it is not about economic growth. At times it is, or at times irresponsible claims will be made. Uh, but I think, human rights aside, growth should really be the sole object of policy. 
And that is a radical view. It's one hardly anyone agrees with. And it's certainly not one we put into practice. So there's plenty of pro-growth policies, like, say, a congestion tax or more high-skilled immigration uh, that just are not going to happen. Those would be some simple examples. So then people get distracted to what you see as the by far the most important thing to focus on. Um, and and well, just to be clear, you're not arguing that it's growth above all. You talk about in the book the principle of growth plus rights, and that's a pretty important plus. And I'm wondering if you could just, well, first off, can you make that, uh, that sort of basic defense of focusing like a laser on growth and then explain how rights comes into the formula? Well, the case for focusing on growth is simply the logic of compound returns. And if your economy grows at, say, 3% rather than 2%, many decades out, it will be much, much wealthier. And virtually everyone will be better off. And I argue that's the only aggregate judgment we can make, is that a much wealthier society is better than a much poorer society. Once you accept that and you work backwards, you end up with the view that we should maximize growth. Uh, but the qualifications are this. First, I don't want to violate uh, human rights to do so. So I wouldn't, you know, say kill a thousand innocent babies just to boost the growth rate by an epsilon. Uh, the second is when I say growth, I don't exactly mean GDP the way we measure it. Uh, we need to measure it a bit better. So I would count uh, the environment in there and just sustainability. It's important not just to grow for a few years, but to be on a path where your economy can continue to grow. So something like climate change, I see, is a major issue that needs to be addressed. But for a lot of practical problems, my notion of growth actually is pretty close to GDP growth. Yeah, but there are a couple things there that I want to get a little more depth into. First off is human rights. And I'll be pretty radical here to say, well, you know, you mentioned I wouldn't be willing to sacrifice, whatever, a thousand people for a small increment of growth. But if you take that small increment of growth and compound it over enough years, it seems to me the logic is that that might actually be smart from a utilitarian perspective. But yet, in the book, you pretty clearly say that human rights are should be a, a higher a higher order sort of thing. So, what's the justification for that? I'm not a pure utilitarian. I would stress that mostly the book is about growth and not human rights. Uh, I believe in human rights myself. But if you just tell people, you know, I only want to grow, and people say, well, but would you grow the economy if it meant slaughtering thousands of innocent babies? And then there's a kind of moral dilemma. What I try to do in the book is just tell people, whatever scope you want to give for human rights, you can combine that with my theory. The book itself doesn't try to tell us where to draw the line. Would it be one baby, a hundred babies, a thousand babies, a million babies? Uh, I don't know. When it comes to rights, I'm an intuitionist. I do believe in them. But 98% of my book is about the maximizing of growth and not the human. Well, and you also mentioned the term sustainability, which I think is, is pretty important here. Now, obviously, there are a lot of folks who are skeptical of, of growth, and they, they talk about, yes, growth, but sustainable growth. But there are other folks uh, who are some who are, well, most of who are very much to the right of, of me. In fact, my co-host on the podcast, Jay, would argue that, well, sustainability doesn't matter as much as we might think because growth in and of itself is going to lead to technological advances. And those technological advances are going to essentially 
address our sustainability concerns and not just address them, but do so in a way that's a lot more efficient than we can imagine currently. And I wanted to get your reaction to that line of thinking. Well, I think that's often true, but it's not really a position different from my own. I would just say when growth itself is what makes things sustainable, do just flat out growth. But there may well be cases such as, say, climate change, where the problem isn't solved automatically just by having more money. Like there's something wrong with the level of carbon in the atmosphere and someone has to do something to fix it. And those fixes, you know, may lower the rate of growth in the short run, but they'll make sure we're in a more stable position for the long run. And I want to give a, a full endorsement to that kind of policy action. So, so we shouldn't be saying, well, we hope something will happen at some point in the future that will fix this through the magic of growth. That would be the equivalent of sort of sticking our heads in the sand, maybe, or whistling past the graveyard, I guess. Right. But if someone says, well, we need protection against large asteroids, I think the correct response really is, look, we can't do that yet. There's not many steps to take. But if we just keep on growing, let's hope in 80 years we're ready and then we'll do it. And I think that's also the correct response. That would seem to be what your friend has in mind. Can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, the Crusonia plant and the role that you see it playing in, in sustainable economic growth? The Crusonia plant is simply my strange metaphor for sustainable growth. If you want, you can call it an apple tree. So an apple tree produces apples, the apples have seeds, that leads to more apple trees, and the thing keeps on going. What we want to do is look for processes, institutions, and rules that just keep on going and growing and give us this increasing stream of value. And uh, economic growth is the one of those we know the most about. So. Uh, that's where my philosophical theory ends up. If you look at philosophers who've considered a free society, such as, say, John Rawls, they have very little to say about economic growth, and what they say is typically wrong. Do you think that there are a lot of Crusonia plants out there? Uh, in the human world, I think economic growth is the main one, and my book does not cover the natural world. So it could be, you know, an ecosystem is self-sustaining and beautiful and it has no human beings and we should let it blossom under the ocean, whatever. I mean, I'm fine with that. I don't really discuss it in the book. But I think outside of the realm of humans, there are many Crisonia plants. But humans are the ones I care about. Right. Now, honestly, I really felt that at least the part of your book, it seemed to me to be very uncontroversial. I mean, sustainable economic growth, it was, it's hard for me to understand how anyone could argue with a case for sustainable economic growth. But what I think was more radical and that I have more of an issue with was when we get into uh, discounting. And, uh, you know, I never really thought that discounting would be something that would fascinate me as a topic, but you found a way to make it interesting to me. And so before we get into that, I'm sure you could do a better job of this than I could. Could you explain to listeners who aren't familiar with the concept what discounting is in economic terms? Sure, but let me first just say I think the principle of maximizing growth is controversial. If you take it seriously, it really means like don't worry about identity, don't worry about inequality, okay. maximize growth. And most people disagree with that. But on your main question, discounting is a decision we make about how much to value the future, and it's very important for the distant future. So if an event happens 30, 50, 100 years from now, 
do we count it as being worth much less, or do we count it as being just the same as today? So I think in the context of a lot of individual business decisions, discounting for particular projects makes sense. But if we're looking at utility for society as a whole, the pains and pleasures that will come in 50 years are no less real than those of today. And I don't think we should discount those at all. And if you don't discount, that gets to the sustainable rate of economic growth being really the most important thing. Because that's how you get the distant future to be much better. And the value of that is not being discounted away. So how far do we go out? I mean, you talk about the distant future. and But when I thought about that, I thought, well, okay, but shouldn't there be at least some sort of a greater discount rate the further we go out? Because the further out we go, there's, it seems to me there's less of a likelihood that those people are even going to exist, you know, we've asteroids or whatever, climate catastrophe or something. And so is that a reasonable way to look at, do you think? Well, I do think we should discount for uncertainty, such as uncertainty about whether the world will end. But there's no reason to think that takes the exponential form of traditional economic discounting, say, by interest rates. Uh, so some kinds of discounting are justified. But you know, all the states where the world is still there, we still want to maximize wealth for those states. So I don't think invoking that consideration will change things much. And and so there's there's kind of a moral case to be made for for discounting, right? I mean, fundamentally, I mean, for That's not right. sorry for I not. Imagine that Cleopatra, you know, way back when, had taken a few extra helpings of dessert, knowing this would mean today, you know, a thousand people would die painful deaths. Positive discounting could justify that. Uh, to me, that does not make moral sense. We should resist that conclusion. Right. And so if, if people, even if the billions and billions in the, even the distant future have the same moral value that, that, that we have in effect, then that would suggest that we need to be so much more cognizant of the effect that our choices make on those people. And here's, here's where I mean, you bring up this problem. We're really not good at all at predicting the long-term consequences of our actions. In fact, you have this interesting argument that I'm hoping you can expand on that we're more than likely to be wrong about long-term predictions of our actions. Could you talk a little bit about that? Of course. So, you know, economics is an okay predictor in the short run. If price goes up, quantity demanded will go down. If you look at 20, 30, 50 years out, the old Yogi Berejo's prediction is hard, especially when it's about the future. Uh, it's absolutely correct. So one implication is simply we should be epistemically very modest. So we should promote what we think is the best policy or the best idea, but we shouldn't be so convinced that we're right. We should be very tolerant of the views of others. But I think another way to look at it is, like say you're trying to do something good for 87 years from now. We don't really know much, if anything, about 87 years from now, but we have this general principle that good institutions are good for really very many decisions we'll need to make 86, 87, 88 years from now. So I think the main practical implication in most cases is just to invest obsessively in higher quality institutions because we don't know all of the details. So if, if things like that, if sort of the, the basic plumbing, good institutions, rule of law, property rights, I'm assuming those are some of the fundamental 
things that that we need to focus on. Then, uh, kind of turning toward you know contemporary politics, one could argue that say something like what President Trump does, for instance, in questioning the legitimacy of our institutions in various ways, could have far greater or more, far more potential for long-term harm than any sort of specific policy decisions. Exactly. I'm very much an opponent of many of the ways in which Trump has violated political norms. I do think we should leave open the possibility in a few cases he might be right and not dismiss all of it. Uh, but I think for the most part, it's been destructive and not constructive. And we see political debate getting worse. Do you think, in terms of predicting, that we're getting any better at it? I mean, certainly we have a lot more tools and technology we can bring to bear. And and with everything that's happening in terms of technological advances, uh, I think maybe one day we'll have some sort of, and this is going to sound really geeky, but like an uh, Asimovium psychohistory type of thing where we can predict out fairly well into the longer term future? Or or are you maybe along the lines of thinking that there were just simply too many variables in play and we're never going to be very good at predicting the long-term future? I don't think we'll ever be very good at it, but we've gotten a lot better at predicting the short-term future. So if you look at randomized control trials and development economics, like what works, what doesn't, uh, they've been very impressive. Maybe they've only answered 5 or 10% of the questions, but that's still real progress, and it's a sign there's hope uh, for some of the others. So economics as a science, it is advancing in fits and starts, but uh, you can see the progress. Before we get to economic growth and human flourishing, where I want to question, I guess, maybe some of the conclusions you come to, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, I, when I suggested that I didn't think that a focus on sustainable economic growth was uh, all that radical. Uh, you suggested, no, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm under, underestimating that. And I was wondering if you meant maybe in terms of opportunity costs in that the time that we, in our political system, we focus on identity politics and other things like that. That's time that we're taking away and resources we're taking away from that sort of thing. Not that those things are inherently unimportant or anything like that. And both the right and left wing do that. And again, it depends with whom you hang out. So if you hang out with economists, maybe the recommendation is less controversial. But if you look at what other great philosophers have written about social welfare, say like Parfit or Rawls or Dworkin, uh, none of them talk about maximizing growth at all. They don't even consider it. And I don't think they would endorse it. John Rawls says growth can be unjust because you're making the initial generation worse off. So I think in the philosophical literature, it's a highly radical suggestion. So I guess my problem is that I've been spending too much time with economists and not enough with philosophers. Well, too much is a different kind of value judgment. Yeah. But I would say, depending what you do, you'll see it as more or less radical. I want to talk about something that you bring up in the book, and certainly that philosophers talk a lot about from, well, from Plato on, uh, on up to the present, and that's uh, human flourishing. Uh, there's this connection that a lot of folks would posit between economic growth and human flourishing. And, and I think there are a, a couple of ways to look at this. Uh, one is, if you look at the data, I, I, th I think it's hard to argue that economic growth isn't very strongly related to longer lives, healthier, healthier lives, greater material comfort, that sort of thing. But 
when it comes to happiness, at least in the terms of, you know, that those kind of deep flourishing type of terms, uh, I think maybe that's a little more questionable, or at least some people are wonder about that. Now you, you look at that in the book, what sort of conclusions do you reach about the connection between economic growth and, and flourishing? Empirically, this sort of deep, complex notion of happiness, we all know it's very hard to measure. But with economic growth, you have better jobs, you have more autonomy in your job, greater ability to choose a marriage partner. If you belong to some minority group or you're gay, you probably have much greater liberty. Uh, if you have you know, a disability or medical condition, the chance you can have a normal life is much higher. And if you count in all of that, the greater access to the world's cultural treasures, I think under a pluralistic point of view ethically, you're very likely to arrive at the conclusion that economic growth really is best for human fulfillment. Okay, I've got a, well, a couple of issues with that. First is how we make this connection. Now, most of the research that I've seen and, and a lot of it that you mentioned in the book on the relationship between wealth and or economic growth, sorry, and happiness relies on polling data. And, and I'm wondering, is that a good thing to, is that a good measure? You know, there, there are a lot of questions with, well, to what extent does what people say in polls really measure their true preferences? And especially when we have pretty clear data on, well, we have other data on things like rising levels of stress and anxiety and depression that we see the most of in the most developed countries, which paints a very different picture of things. Uh, what do you think? I would agree there are many problems with the polls, but I think, you know, maybe the best measure is just to look at what countries do people wish to move to. And that's the U.S., Canada, Australia, Germany. It's the wealthy countries. And that's a demonstrated preference that, to me, is stronger than any polling data. And there are some stresses in America that maybe you don't have in India, but there are lots of stresses in India, like noise pollution, air pollution, infant mortality, that are not nearly as bad in the U.S. So overall, I would definitely still opt for the bundle offered to us by the wealthier countries. And, and in that is, is the, I guess, the premise that uh, people know what makes them happy, which is, they, well, at least they think they know what makes them happy, which is why they're moving to places like the United States, for instance. Yes, yeah, so not everyone stays, of course. Some people go back. Uh, but overall, if you look at within countries, where do people move? Well, they move to the wealthier growing areas. That's also evidence. Again, not everyone stays, or some people will prefer to retire in a low-rent area. But still, I think the preponderance of evidence there is very strongly on the side of greater wealth. And, and there's sort of a, I don't know, a formula here, but it, it seems to me there's a, a connection that you're arguing is that economic growth uh, tends to lead to more liberty, tends to lead to more choice, tends to lead to more happiness. I mean, that's obviously a simplification, but is that more or less how it works, do you think? The kind of virtuous circle. So okay. when you get on that track, I don't want to say it's a kind of automatic renewal, but you have a lot of positive forces operating in your favor. And here's my deeper critique of that. Um, uh, the book I read after I finished uh, Stubborn Attachments was a book by Patrick Deneen called Why Liberalism Failed. Um, and when I was thinking about our conversation, there, there was a line, a couple of lines in your book that made me think of uh, the Deneen's book. Uh, you write at one point, 
In this book, I suggest that we need a radical reawakening. And this reawakening will prove to be a new and compelling way of reaffirming our own power as individuals. And then a bit later on, you continue, uh, economic growth also gives individuals greater autonomy and minimizes the chance that their destiny will be, be determined by the time and place in which they were born. Now, Deneen's argument, well, at least as it seems to me, is almost the polar opposite of that, that essentially that liberalism's obsessive focus on the individual, and by liberalism, I mean just that broader thing, whether you're a, you know, a conservative or a liberal uh, uh, in the contemporary West, his argument is that essentially is, is unsustainable because, yes, we're individuals, but we're individuals who are situated in a time and a place, and we're bound by these customs, and that's actually a good thing. And, and liberalism and this focus on economic growth has, has almost destroyed these things. Uh, and, and that's obviously a very different view of things, a very more, much more of a pessimistic view. Uh, what do you think about that? I think he's much too pessimistic about liberalism. It has not at all been shown to fail. Uh, the United States has a high level of debt. I mean, we need to grow to pay that off, right, in addition to doing other grant projects. And when you get to the simple question, what actually is his proposed alternative, you can look at a country like Italy that had no per capita income growth in about 18 years, and you look at their politics, you look at opportunities for young people, Italy is nothing to envy. They have their own loneliness problems. Uh, so I found his book unsatisfactory for those reasons. You know, I get that it's not all cheer and roses every step along the way. But what actually does he think is the system that can do better other than liberalism? So far, I haven't seen it. No, no I, I agree. That was definitely uh, uh, an issue with the book. There wasn't much of an alternative to be, to be offered as opposed to some sort of a, a so-called Benedict option for people who want to opt out, but it seems unrealistic. But anyway, um, you know, at the close of your book, you try to get a little more concrete with your recommendations uh, that, are, that are based on this, the, the logic you sort of explain throughout the book. And in terms of policy, you recommend that policy be more forward-looking, more focused on investment and growth, and also uh, more focused on the, on the fragility of our civilization. And I guess that's a bit more concrete, but I was wondering if you could be more specific yet. I mean, for instance, let's say you're advising an American president, and, and I was going to say President Trump, but I thought that might be problematic. So just any Amer modern American president, uh, what sort of sort of specific, you know, maybe three or so policy recommendations would you make uh, based on this logic? I'm willing to be more concrete, but let me first say the book is deliberately not concrete on purpose. The way a lot of books work is people first try to figure out what conclusion you'll end up in, and then they decide whether or not they like it. Sure. And then they judge your whole argument on that basis. So I'm just trying to tell people, look, fix on this target. And that's my overwhelming message. And I don't want to distract them with particular ideas. But one thing I would do is make it easier to build in America's expensive high-density cities. I would have more high-skilled uh, immigration. I would apply congestion taxes in cities and suburbs where needed. I would have a carbon tax to ease our shift into green energy. I would deregulate many sectors of the American economy to encourage more growth. So I would not in general deregulate the environment 
for every part of finance. That's like a very quick overview, yeah. but you asked for a few. There you go. And it strikes me that there are things on, on that list that would both uh, cheer and dismay both uh, Republic, uh, mainstream Republicans and mainstream Democrats. Yes, you know, I feel the book, in, in a sense, should annoy everyone a bit, <laughs> uh, but those are actually my views. And I think that's important because, that, I mean, you're certainly associated, I guess I would say, with a, a libertarian perspective, but yet a lot of these proposals, a lot of what you what you come up with, it seems to me is is I don't even want to call it bipartisan or postpartisan, but uh, it's not exactly a, a standard Republican agenda by any means. Yes, and I stress in the book, as you know, that a lot of income redistributions can boost the rate of economic growth. Now, by no means do they all. Let's say addressing malnutrition, for instance, would be the simplest example, easy to see. It's going to boost growth rates. Workers will be more productive. And I absolutely argue we should do those things. But we should limit redistribution along the same principles. Now, what about feasibility? You talk about this a little bit in the book with, uh, when you discuss sort of, uh, I guess, political uh, incentives versus what's good in terms of policy. That how, given the way our political system is structured and the incentives in the system for office holders, do you see us moving toward, uh, well, I get the two things. Should, do you see us moving, number one, toward uh, much more of a focus on growth? And secondly, much more, and this might be more difficult, I would think, much more of a concern with the distant future. Uh, right now, I see the United States becoming more short-term and more selfish and moving somewhat in the wrong direction. So you can see this in our fiscal policy. You can see it in our climate policy. Uh, so this, to me, is discouraging. I like to think we'll get back on a better track. Uh, I'm still waiting. Now, I guess I, I know you're not you're not a political scientist. Maybe this is an unfair question, but I'll I'll put you on the spot here. Uh, so, what? How do you see this changing? I mean, do you see any way that this could possibly change? Because when I when I look at this situation. I, I sometimes get somewhere close to despair. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Well, if you take climate change, for instance, I think the chance of the U.S. electorate coming around to say a carbon tax is very small. You see in France, which is in some ways a more left-wing country, people are rioting against taxes on gasoline. Carbon taxes have been a pretty unpopular idea in most countries. Uh, but I think there's actually a good chance things like solar and wind power, electric cars, will just come along a lot quicker than we had thought, and they're not going to solve the problem, but they will ease the problem. And uh, the idea that those technologies will receive more support, I find that entirely possible, feasible, maybe even likely. So I'm not a mega pessimist. I would say I'm extremely concerned. Well, and there, there are some, uh, I guess especially on the right, who would say uh, that this is essentially the market Working its working its magic, and that we're going to get uh, these sort of more energy efficient vehicles because, well, the energy companies understand what the future is going to look like, and businesses are planning for this different environment, and so this will just gradually, incrementally move us toward more forward looking policies because because the market is has to take that into consideration. Do you think that's how it's going to happen? I mean, with more more through the market than through uh, the governmental structures? Well, a lot of it is the market. We should give the market credit for that. 
but there are also a lot of governmental nudges on the supply side, on the R&D side. So uh, it's market and government. Market versus government is not always the best framework. But I think if you're a fix for climate change, it's just, you know, government does everything, taxes everything. That's not going to work. Like, you need the innovations to pay off in some way. And at some point, they need to be profitable. I think they will be. And yes, we should credit the market there. But I don't think relying only on the market is the quickest or best way to get there either. Now, before we close, I did want to let listeners know that all of Tyler's receipts for stubborn attachments are going to uh, Jonas, who's a, a, a tour guide in Ethiopia, Ethiopia, who's starting a travel business. And, and Tyler, I was wondering if you could give us an update. I know you have a few times on uh, Marginal Revolution, but uh, how are things going with uh, Jonas's businesses at this point? I visited Jonas over Thanksgiving. I, my wife and I had Thanksgiving meal with Jonas in his house. It was wonderful. Uh, he's doing great. He has received uh, early installments. You know, my share of the royalties on the book, it all goes to Jonas. His uh, income, you know, is extremely low. He has a new family, and he's supporting about 10 people. And he recently bought a piece of land, and he's building a bigger house there. And he wants to purchase a vehicle for his travel business rather than just being a guide who meets people at the airport. And he's in the midst of doing all those things. Uh, I'm very hopeful about what will happen there. I had a very good long conversation with him and came away very much feeling, you know, I picked the right guy to give the money to. Well, it's just it's just a great story and and a great cause and and definitely well worth uh, buying the book if not just for the for the content as usual. Yeah, I, I was a, I really enjoyed it so for that as well. And with that, we will close. Uh, Tyler Cowan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for your time, attention, and interest. It is always appreciated, and hope to be in touch again. <laughs>